All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. The title to our message this morning is, And the Rock Was Christ. Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said, said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Father, even as... The earth outside soaks up the rain, and we know that it will yield uh, greenery and vegetation and trees and fruit, Lord. So we know that as your word goes forth today, it will accomplish those things which you've sent it forth to do. Lord, may it accomplish in us softness of heart and repentance and good fruit. May we not be those who have hard hearts from your word being preached. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. One of the things that my boys like to do um, is to hit the rewind button over and over and over again when we're watching a movie, when a funny scene comes on because they can't get enough of it, you know? And at some point, me and my wife are like, okay, enough. We've seen it eight times now. Just let the movie play. And that's what this bit in Exodus feels like, doesn't it? If you've been with us. Ever since Israel left Egypt, it's like we're watching the same clip over and over again. First, they were trapped at the Red Sea, so they accused God of bringing them into the wilderness to kill them. Chapter 14, verse 11, God saves them. Secondly, they then arrived at the bitter waters of Marah and bitterly grumbled. Chapter 15, verse 24, God healed the water. 
Thirdly, then they come to the wilderness of sin and said it would have been better for them to die in Egypt because at least they had meat pots there they could eat from, chapter 16, verse 3. So God rained down bread from heaven. And now Israel is at Rephidim, and it's just a replay of the same clip. Why all this repetition? Well, I hope, I hope you can actually answer that question yourself, because this is the Christian life. God is telling us history here, but he's also showing us what the Christian life is like. How many times have you and I felt trapped beyond all hope? How many times have we felt our resources fail? How many times has unbelief taken over? This morning, I was frustrated in my seat over an internal argument I'm having with myself. How many times have we grumbled in our circumstances, the very circumstances that we confess that God sovereignly ordained? And how many times has God delivered? Has God ever ever not delivered you. So God is holding the rewind button down so that we will begin to see that this is our problem here in Exodus. This is not a problem outside of us. God wants us to trust him. Our trials exist so that we would, he, we would see that if we will walk in God's law or not. So let's see how Israel does on this particular test. First of all, our doctrine. Please look with me at verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. Don't forget, Yahweh is right there with them in the fire cloud. Exodus 40, 36 says, Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up, the people of Israel set out. So their every single step was divinely determined. And dear congregation, you already know this, but God is letting us see it again because this is the very first thing that we forget when trials come. Israel had a reminder that God led them there because the fire cloud was right in their midst. What do we have? We don't have a fire cloud. Yeah, we have something way better. We have the completed, fulfilled word of God with all of the prophecies that have come to pass. We have the cross of Christ in history. We have much more to remind us that God is with us whenever we find ourselves in trials. So God is the one who brought us to this place. Continuing on, we read, they camped at Rephidim. Now, Rephidim means resting place, or it means place of rest. Um, I think that's interesting. Uh, Perhaps paradoxically here, Israel's trial was not at all aimed at their distress, but their rest. Um, Trials are given to God's people so that we would rest, not in our circumstances, but in him. And here's the trial, end of verse 1. But there was no water for them to drink. Now you may think, well, we've actually seen this exact trial back at the waters of 
Mara, but no, we haven't, because back at the waters of Mara, there was a, at least water. God made it sweet, um, but here um, it would appear that God would have to make the water, if that was going to happen, ex nihilo, out of nothing. At least if they came to bitter water again, they could have believed God because they've seen him do that play before, right? But certainly this is different. And that's what we always say, right? Well, this new trial, these new circumstances, they're way different than anything that God has ever gotten me through before. And so I don't know if he's... How do we finish that sentence? Well, typically we don't say it out loud, do we? Strong enough. God delivered back there, but this is different. I, I, I'm, this is me, brothers and sisters. So what does Israel do? They put them on trial. Look at verse 2. Therefore the people of Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Now fascinating here that the Hebrew word for test, it's the same term for a covenant lawsuit. Uh, Phil Riken says here that Israel was bringing God to trial. They were putting God in the dock. They were suing him. They were acting as if God was the criminal and they were the prosecuting attorney. And they bring three specific charges against God. So charge number one, they charge God with not providing for them. Charge number one, they, provide, they char, uh, charge God with not providing for them. In verse two, they demand, give us water. The verb is in the imperative mood. They're demanding God to act. They're not asking. He failed to provide for them in their eyes, and so they're suing him for damages. Charge number two, they charge God with not protecting them. They charge God with not protecting them. Look at verse three. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us? and our children, and our livestock with thirst. If you ever wonder why the, the scripture calls the unsaved person stupid, this is why. Sin is the utter manifestation of stupidity and wickedness. Through, uh, Israel had experienced mercy after tender mercy, ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, the manna, uh, every single deliverance, and now they hardened their own hearts and they stupidly accuse God of trying to kill them. I don't know if you saw this story this last week. It reminds me, uh, women's soccer star Megan Rapino. she injured her Achilles heel in, in the middle of this game, probably the last game of her career, and she responded to her injury by saying, if there was a God... This is proof that there isn't. You have a soul that will never die. God has given you rain and sunshine and a body. He's made you the most famous soccer star in the world, women's side. And, and proof that God doesn't exist is because your Achilles ankle got torn.
Here, Israel was redeemed from two centuries of slavery, and now they charge God of not protecting them. Charge number three, they charge God with not being present with them. They charge God with not being present. Look at the end of verse seven. It says, they tested, it's the same word for covenant lawsuit. They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Apparently, Israel assumed that life after Egypt should be easy and comfortable. And if they experienced any upsetting circumstances at all, it was evidence that God had abandoned him and forsaken them. So those were the three charges. They charged God, number one, with not providing, number two, with not protecting, and number three, with not being present with them. Now... How angry was God at this moment? This this particular text doesn't tell us, but all of the rest of Scripture, Moses, the psalmist, Jesus, and the apostles, all look back on this event with condemnation. Here's a sample. Psalm 95, 8 and 9, the psalmist says, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test. And then Deuteronomy 9.22, Moses says, At Massa, you provoked the Lord to to wrath. So God literally is, is mad as hell at this point. Israel was so wicked in their blaming the Lord that Moses was afraid for his life. Look at verse 4. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Now, how should the rest of this story end? Children, boys and girls, your, your parents have raised you, clothed you, fed you, loved you, bore with you, forgiven you, rebuked you, corrected you. Imagine you're sitting at the dinner table with them and they provided another one of the thousand beautiful meals, and you slap your dad right across the face. What should your dad do? This is way worse than that. And the ending of this story is absolutely shocking. Look look how God responds. Verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, notice three things that are historical here that are just amazing things that teach us something about the grace of God. Number one, verse five, Moses was to take the staff of judgment with him. This was the staff that God judged Egypt with. Number two, in verse six, the Lord himself was going to take a stand on the rock at Horeb. 
Yahweh, who appeared in the burning bush and in the fire cloud, was now going to mystically appear on this rock at Horeb. Horeb is another name for Sinai. It's going to be the place where Moses gives the law. So take that in. Yahweh is standing on the rock where God's law is going to be delivered. In other words, what Yahweh is doing here is he's accepting this covenant lawsuit, and that rock is the defendant's seat, and he's taking himself and putting himself in the dock. And then number three in verse six, he tells Moses to strike the rock. Just as God had used that staff to judge Egypt, now that rock where the Lord is standing was going to be struck, it's going to be judged, and as a result, water would come out and Israel would be saved. So God answers all three charges. Number one, he provided water for them, that's charge number one. He protected them, charge number two, by enduring the judgment himself, and charge number three, he was present with them because he once again appeared on the rock. I hope, I hope 20 years from now, any one of you little covenant children could finish the rest of this message because it's so clear what's going on, isn't it? This is our doctrine, that God struck Christ for our sin, and he supplied the Spirit for our sanctification. Dear congregation, if there was ever a passage in the Old Testament that demonstrates that God teaches us the gospel through types, it's this passage right here. Consider how there's two types on display. Type number one, the rock was Christ. Type number one, the rock was Christ. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. In this place, Paul is dealing with the Corinthian church. He's dealing with their proclivity to test the Lord, which they did chapter after chapter, their proclivity to sin like Israel sinned. And he points back to this very event. And he says this, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. The rock itself was an appearing of Christ to Israel. Oh, dear congregation, consider the the gospel narrative that is unfolding in the book of Exodus right before our eyes. What did we see in chapter 16? God sent down bread from heaven. Jesus says, I am the true bread that came down. That is the incarnation. And now we're in chapter 17, and what do we see? We see the punishment and crucifixion of the Son. Jesus bore the judgment of God by being struck in the very place of sinners. Type number two, the water was the spirit. Please turn with me to John 7, 37 through 39. Here, Jesus is speaking at the Feast of Booths. This is the yearly feast 
that Jews celebrated to commemorate the wilderness. They would actually construct these little tabernacles, these little booths, these little tents to remind them of the 40 years that they were in the wilderness. So it's at this feast that they would have celebrated the water from the rock. And what does Jesus say at, in the middle of this feast? Look at John 7, 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up, cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he, now this he said about the Spirit, with whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Spirit was the water that Jesus is giving man to drink. You see the magnificent truth here? When Jesus was glorified, end of this verse, when he was struck down for our sins, the Holy Spirit, that living water, is supplied. And consider, again, just the way that Scripture works. What happens at the end of the Gospels? Jesus is struck down for our sins, then he's raised up three days later and glorified, right? What happens at the very beginning of the book of Acts? The Holy Spirit is poured out. Acts chapter 2, verse 18, in those days I will pour out my spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 33, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Christ, poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The, ex- the, the, the New Testament is just the Old Testament rewound, isn't it? And clarified and illuminated so that we can see what God has done from the beginning of time to save his people. So that's our doctrine. Just as God struck the rock at Horeb, sparing Israel from judgment, so, Christ, so God struck Christ for our sin. And just as the rock supplied all the water that Israel would ever need, Christ has supplied us with his spirit for our sanctification. So let's look then at our duty. We have to return to this idea of Israel being tested. That, that takes up the main quantity of our verses here. Since they left Egypt, they've been tested four times at the Red Sea, at Marat, the wilderness of sin, and here at Rephidim. And, and here, in particular, they failed. They failed at the other three, but they especially failed here. And Moses brings it to our special attention in verse 2. Why do you test the Lord? That hasn't been asked before. Why are you putting the Lord in a covenant lawsuit? And so we have to examine ourselves, dear congregation. How do we respond when we are at Rephidim? Ask yourself, when God is testing you, do do you turn the tables on him? Do you put God in the dock when you think that things aren't going well? And maybe you're unsure. Is there a way to know if I'm testing the Lord? Yes. 
There are, there are three warning signs in our passage to show whether we're testing the Lord or not. Warning sign number one, we're testing the Lord if we grumble in our circumstances. We're testing the Lord if we grumble in our circumstances. Verse three says, but the people thirsted for water. That's their circumstance. And they grumbled. Now, certainly, God does want us to respond when circumstances go uh, um, poorly. He, he wants us to pray to him. He welcomes the prayer. He, he welcomes us to tell him what our needs are and say, Lord, I'm in a bad spot. Can you, can you help me? That's what he's aiming at. He's aiming at our full and complete dependence upon him. He, he welcomes that. He loves that. But that's not what they did. They grumbled. They murmured. They did this. They did. They sighed. They despaired. And that's testing the Lord. I know how guilty we are of this, dear congregation. How often our first response to those poor circumstances is to complain, whether we do it out loud or we do it in our hearts. See, those of us who have been around longer know how to hide it a little bit better. How should we respond? Philippians 4, 6 through 7, do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. We're often robbed of peace because we grumble and we don't take it to the Lord in prayer. And that is testing the Lord. Warning side number two. We're testing the Lord if we quarrel with his authorities. Warning side number two. We're testing the Lord if we quarrel with his authorities. Verse two. Who did the people quarrel with? With Moses. They grumbled against Moses. They complained against Moses. Moses was so afraid of them that he thought that they were going to stone him. And Moses asked, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? A.W. Pink says here, Moses at once reminded the Israelites that in criticizing him, they tested the Lord. Moses was their appointed leader, God's representative to the people, and therefore to murmur against him was to murmur against the Lord himself. Children, boys and girls, do you realize that if you murmur against your parents, you're, you're testing the Lord? Wives, Sisters in Christ, do you realize that if you grumble against your husband, you're testing the Lord? Dear congregation, members of the church, do you realize that if you murmur against your pastors, you're testing the Lord? It's it's 100% true that our leaders are not perfect. They're woefully insufficient. 
Our, our parents are not perfect. Our husbands are not perfect. Our pastors are not perfect. God knows that, but he has appointed these nonetheless. And this is what the Heidelberg Catechism says on, on question 104. Listen to it. I am to honor and love and be loyal to my mother and father and all those in authority over me. I am to submit in proper obedience to all of their good teaching and discipline and also to be patient with their failings for through them, parents, husbands, pastors, through them, God chooses to rule over us. If we murmur against those in authority over us, we're, we're testing the Lord. Warning sign number three We're testing the Lord if we believe lies. We're testing the Lord if we believe lies. Israel believed two lies about God. One, they believed he was trying to kill them. End of verse 3. Two, they believed that he had abandoned them. End of verse 7. Israel's essential problem was that they believed lies specifically about how their wilderness experience should go. They they began to believe that life was all about them, about their own comfort, about their own peace. As one author says here, quote, Israel refused to understand why God, who had performed such great miracles in Egypt and after, was now not giving them an easy, cushioned life. How many of us fall into that same trap? We might not say it out loud, but we often believe God ought to give us an easy, comfortable life. And I know that based on how we respond to those trials when they come. Like like some strange thing has happened to us. What's going on, God? I thought that things were supposed to be easy now. Dear congregation, that's to believe lies. We, we need to understand this again and again. The Exodus is not about Israel. Human history is not about us. It's about the greatness of God. God has ordained all things to display the greatness of his glory, as the Shorter Catechism says. Exodus 9, 16, but for this purpose, remember this was the heartbeat, the center of the book, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You exist, loved ones, for the main purpose of displaying the greatness and mercy and grace and power and wisdom of God. That's why you exist. And when we get that wrong, when we believe that God is supposed to work all things for our comfort and our peace, we're believing lies and we test the Lord. So if, if I've just described you in any way, please warn yourself, admonish yourself, rebuke yourself. What Israel did here at Rephidim was done because their hearts were hardened. Psalm 95, 7 and 8, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Mirabah when your fathers put me to the test. So if you find yourself testing God, if you find yourself with a hard heart, then listen to his voice. 
and, and repent. That's, that's the good news about the gospel is that you can repent. You can change course. You can be forgiven. Turn back to the Lord. So that's our duty. We ought never to test the Lord. How do we know if we're testing him? We test the Lord, number one, whenever we grumble at our circumstances, whenever we quarrel with our appointed authorities, and whenever we believe the lie that life is about us. So let's then look to our delight. And we desperately need one from this passage because if you're anything like me, then you know that these things you did this week. Why didn't God annihilate Israel? Ever since Israel left Egypt, she failed every test that God has given her. And at Rephidim, she gravely sinned. Why didn't God annihilate her? Because Christ took his stand on that rock. And he was beat and struck for her sins. He stood in the dock for her. She was spared. He was struck down. And that's our first delight, loved ones, that Christ is our rock. This passage at Rephidim, it forms all of the other language in the scripture where it says that God is our rock. This is the origin. It's the center of it. The Lord is the rock that bore you, Deuteronomy 32, 18. He is the incomparable rock. 1 Samuel 2, 2, there was no rock like our God. He is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. 2 Samuel 2, 22 and 23, the rock of Israel. 2 Samuel 23, 3, my rock and my redeemer, Psalm 19, 14. My rock and my salvation, Psalm 62, 2. My mighty rock, Psalm 62, 7. The rock of my refuge, Isaiah 17, 10. Don't you see that this, this is precisely the reason why God hasn't annihilated us? How many times have we tested God? Where is our judgment? It fell on that rock. That rock, our redeemer, our fortress, our refuge, our salvation. Christ bore it all. Do you see the, the divide here? Christ not only paid for all of our sins, our Egyptian sins, before we were redeemed, but he pays for all of our sins on this side while we're traveling through. He's not a partial redeemer. He's Christ the solid rock. Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Children, boys and girls, you ever just wonder, we, we, we sing such strange songs at church, don't we? We, t- we call our God a rock. Have you ever thought about that? Why don't, we, why don't we call him a small pebble, a little stone? Would that inspire faith when you find yourself falling again and again that my God is a small pebble? No, he's called the rock precisely because he is the almighty, omnipotent God. For unto us a son is born. Unto us a child is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. 
Why is Christ called a rock? Because even when our loyalties fail us, even when we are unfaithful in every way, Jesus Christ never changes. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he will be faithful all the way to the gates of hell. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful for he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2, 13. Why is Christ called the rock? Because all who build their life on him, all who make Jesus Christ the very foundation of their existence will never perish. Do you remember the story that Jesus told on the Sermon on the Mount? He said that all who hear his words, all who believe on him will be like a house built on a rock. And though the rains fall and the floods come and the winds blow and they beat the house, it will not fall because it's been founded on the rock. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have not built your life upon Jesus Christ. That's not your foundation at all. Jesus warns you that When the rains fall, when the floods come, when the winds blow and beat against your house, you will fall and great will be your fall. You cannot stand under the judgment of God on your own two feet. You have to be standing on the rock. And so turn. Turn in repentance to Christ. Call upon his name and your sins can be forgiven and washed away. And you will stand on a rock that will never fail you even when the great judgment comes. Our second delight is that the Holy Spirit is our living water. I think it's interesting in our passage that Moses left Rephidim and he went to Horeb. Why didn't he just produce water there? Horeb, of course, is another name for Sinai, where Moses was going to receive the law from God. And starting in the next chapter, Israel is going to be at that place at Sinai for the rest of Exodus. So, so why? Why at Rephidim? Why, why, why at Horeb? Well, here's my speculation. This rock was going to provide water for them for the rest of the book of Exodus. When they go to Sinai, they're going to receive the commandments from God. They're going to build a tabernacle. They're not going to move on from there on. And Christ is going to continue to provide water for the rest of the book. How does that help us? Well, because it teaches us that Jesus didn't give us the Spirit as a one-off. The Holy Spirit of God is with us always until the end of the age. This is such good news because... We need specific things in our wilderness journey, things that we don't have on our own. What do you need in the wilderness journey? Well, you need to be sanctified. The scripture says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. What does God supply you with? The Holy Spirit for your sanctification. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, you were washed, you were sanctified by the Spirit of our God. What do you need in your journey, your journey through the wilderness? Well, you need to be led by the Spirit because if you live 
according to the flesh, you will die. Romans 8.13. What does God do for you? He supplies the spirit, whoever lives, to lead us in the ways of God. Romans 8.14. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. What do you need in your wilderness journey? Well, you need to persevere to the end. Matthew 24, 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. What does God provide for us? The spirit of perseverance. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 1, 21 through 22, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and he has anointed us, and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This water that comes out of the rock, this Holy Spirit, is what you need to make it to heaven. And he gives it freely from the wounds of Christ. So then what do we do with our passage? What, what's our charge this morning? Well, look at verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? They named the place. John Currid says here, quote, the purpose of naming this site in this way was so that the people of Israel should never forget how foolishly and shamefully they acted here, end quote. Isn't that interesting? Um, That this place was named after their sin so that they wouldn't forget it. And that's our charge, loved ones, that we, we must not forget our sins. It's vital to know that we have been forgiven from our sins. It's vital to know that the Son has set us free, but we must not forget what God has redeemed us from. God set up this memorial so that Israel wouldn't continue to commit the same sins again and again. So, loved ones, don't forget. Don't forget what you've been redeemed from. Don't forget what Christ had to be punished for. Visit those memorials in your heart, not to heap up guilt on yourself. Because for every one look at your sin, you give two looks to the Savior. Our sins are are no longer meant to, to hold us down and condemn us. They're meant to elevate the grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness of God. So look on those memorials with gratefulness that your rock has redeemed you. And be led by the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we truly are thankful for the infinite grace that we have in this passage. That though you have spread a feast for us time and again, and we have often slapped you in the face. You have not annihilated us, but Lord, you remind us that even those sins, those grievous sins have been punished on Christ. So Lord, help us to learn from them. 
Help us to um, realize that those memorials exist so that, Lord, that we wouldn't go through the heartache of those sins again. That you would lead us, Lord, from one degree of glory to another. Help us to do this, Lord, by the living water of your spirit. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.